Gotta get me some real tight britches. Gotta get me a date. Gotta be like those real wild bitches. And I can hardly wait. I'd rather swish than fight. Queer Ephemera is a storytelling podcast which cruises the archives for stories from the margins of history and shares them with anyone who will listen. For today's episode, we're moving a little closer to home than our usual early 20th century stomping grounds, back to the UK in the 1980s, where politicians brandished a children's book as proof that school pupils were being indoctrinated into homosexuality and induced a moral outrage. Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin was a small photo book for children which the Education Secretary branded as Blatant Homosexual Propaganda. At Queer Ephemera, we are proud makers and distributors of homosexual propaganda, so naturally we wanted to find out more. This is the story of Jenny, Eric and Martin, of the picture book which threatened the right wing and which sparked Section 28, the law that banned the promotion of homosexuality until this century. We're recording this episode shortly after the 2019 UK election, when the UK voted in a Conservative government with the largest majority since 1987. So let's go back in time to see what they have in store for us. This episode is dedicated to all the rebel booksellers and librarians who champion LGBT children's literature, and particularly to Siegfried and Bob from The Lavender Menace, the first gay bookshop in Scotland. We love you! We start most episodes of Queer Ephemera with a story to set the scene and introduce the topic, and this episode is no exception. Because today we are looking at a children's storybook, and unlike many of the people who talk about it, we've actually read it. It's quite hard to find. There is a copy in the National Library in Edinburgh, and the experience of reading it is a strange one. Pluck up the courage to ascend the fine marble stairs and ask to see a children's picture book. The reading room is silent, aside from the clack of keyboards and the swish of pages. Someone across from you is reading an old manuscript propped up on foam boards. Someone behind you is almost hidden behind a stack of leather-bound law textbooks. You put Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin down on the desk in front of you. It gleams with the neon colours that advertise your mission to read a picture book. A pensioner with a genealogy text gives you a funny look. You wink at her and turn back to Jenny. It is such a little book to have caused so much trouble, with a soft gloss cover and thin pages. Like many things from the 1980s, and many products for children now, it screams with colour. Its cover is an unrelenting bright yellow, with bubbles of blue text spelling out the title. All the elements are picked out by a lurid green drop shadow that strobes against the bright yellows and blues. When your eyes adjust to the glare of the 1980s, you can see three framed photographs, a grimacing little blonde girl and two serious-looking men with dark hair. You flip the cover open. Inside, there are black and white photographs with green text and details. This is Jenny. She is five years old. This is Jenny's dad. He is called Martin. This is Eric. He lives with Jenny's dad. Jenny, Martin and Eric live in a little house in Denmark. Living nearby is Jenny's mum, Karen. She often comes to visit them. The story covers a weekend in the life of the family. It is broken down into three parts. Part one. 
It is Eric's birthday. The first part of the story is a riveting account of Martin picking his daughter up from school. Martin and Jenny go back to their house and arrange a surprise party for Eric with Jenny's mum. They make cakes and party food, putting them out in the garden. In a shocking twist, they all eat their tea in the garden. They dig potatoes before Karen goes home and it's time for bed. Part two. It is Saturday. Jenny opens her eyes. Everything is quiet. She looks over to the curtains. Yes, the sun is shining outside. She tiptoes into the bedroom. Martin and Eric are still asleep. Martin is closest to her. She tugs his arm gently, then harder. Dad, Dad, wake up. He certainly is very sleepy. Jenny climbs into bed and reads a book with her doll until her dads wake up. They make crisp bread for breakfast and eat it in bed. The penultimate episode of the story continues at this galloping pace as the family mend a punctured bike tyre and Eric and Martin have an argument over whose turn it is to cook cauliflower cheese for tea. They draw straws, make up and comfort Jenny, who doesn't like to see them fight. We do love each other, even if we argue sometimes, says Eric, looking at Martin. Martin gives him a big kiss right on the mouth. Jenny gets one on the nose. After tea, they play lotto until bedtime. Part 3. It is Sunday. The final instalment of the adventure details the drama of the family's division of housework labour. After the immediate chores are completed, Jenny throws a strop on the way to the laundrette, but gets over herself. On the way back, Eric and Martin pretend to be horses, pulling a carriage of Jenny in a laundry cart. They almost bump into a neighbour called Mrs Andrews, who is unimpressed by their apologies. Sorry, you gays! Why don't you stay at home and the rest of us don't have to see you? Ah! Eric scoops Jenny up to comfort her, and the three of them leave the fuming homophobe to her own devices. At home in the garden, Jenny asks Eric about what happened. He explains why some people hate gays through the medium of chalk drawings, which the book faithfully reproduces with little stick figures and speech bubbles. Here are Bill and Fred. I love you, Fred. I love you too, Bill. Why don't we move in together? That is a good idea. Here comes grumpy Mrs. Jones. Oh no, what is this? Two men cannot live together. It is very wrong. But we really love each other. Why is it wrong? It just is. Anyway, my husband would never kiss another man. The stick figure of Mr. Jones enters the frame and disagrees. He casually comes out as bisexual, and that convinces his wife to stop harassing random people on the street. There's so many things people think are wrong. It can never be wrong to live with someone you're fond of. I suppose that's right. I never thought of it that way. I'm sorry. You must forgive me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wave the fantastically magnanimous Bill and Fred and go back to minding their own business. We still have a lot of questions for Bill and Fred and the Andrews couple, but Jenny, being five, is happy with the stick figure explanation. Jenny's little pal Danny comes round and the children cover the rest of the garden in chalk. Jenny recounts the chalk homophobia story to Danny, who is apparently a fabulously well-connected five-year-old. He promises he will pass the message on to his mother, who will explain the whole situation to Mrs Andrews. It is time for bed. Jenny gets into her pyjamas and asks some searching, childish questions that make her realise how much she loves her dads 
and makes them appreciate how much they love her. You turn to the next page, but reach the back cover. The story is over. It's a sweet story. It's not radical. It's not eccentric. It doesn't break the mould. It does not resist the status quo. It's not perverse. In short, it does not do any of the things that would normally earmark a subject for an episode of Queer Ephemera. Aside from its obvious atrocities to font choice and a subversion of graphic design principles, there's nothing perverted about it. It's not even particularly fun to read as an adult in the 21st century, though of course it is not for adults or the 21st century. It does exactly what it is meant to do, shows a queer family's day-to-day life to counteract a culture of misinformation and hysteria. The book was written by a straight Danish writer, Susanna Bursche, in 1981. After parents at a local nursery complained about her gay friends living in a flat nearby, she penned the book so others could see that different families were not a threat to them. While researching for the book, I became aware that there are a lot of children in Denmark living with a homosexual father or mother, and that there was a need for a book for these children to identify with. So I wrote this everyday story about Jenny living with her father and stepfather. Andreas Hansen took black and white pictures to accompany the story of a weekend in the life of a family with two men. The pictures featured her gay friends, Eric and Martin, and the little girl Jenny was played by the author's own daughter. The book was published in Copenhagen in 1982 to mild press interest and OK reviews. It was translated into English in 1982 by Louis Mackay with support from the Danish government and published by a small gay press. Aubrey Walter, a teacher, took the book on for the gay man's press. The first English-language picture book about LGBT parents was Jane Severance's 1979, When Meghan Went Away in America, but Jenny was the first of its kind to be published in Britain. Did the gay men's press ever think about tailoring the picture book to a British audience? With its black-and-white photographs of shirtless men eating crisp bread in bed, the book does have a very Scandinavian feel. The most popular British children's books of the 1980s tended to be illustrated with line drawings, and if you do see a father in bed, he is wearing striped pyjamas with all the buttons done up. The look is somewhere between the floor-length Victorian nightdress of Wee Willy Winky and the more playful 1990s bananas in pyjamas who have the top button of their pyjamas undone to prove how relaxed they are. But in Jenny we see real photographs of dads, not illustrations, and they're not wearing pyjamas, buttoned or otherwise. The gay men's press did think that the photographs might pose an issue for the British public, but they were mainly worried about the branding on the products in the photos. Children in the UK did not eat crisp breads from small bowls. The gay men's press knew that the book was the first of its kind in the UK and that it had the potential to attract right-wing ire. One of the problems for a gay house is that what seems shocking to the straight public just seems like an ordinary and natural thing. We took a deep breath, I admit. They put out a press release and waited. And waited. The English language version of Jenny was released in 1983. A small first impression of 3,000 was circulated at the cost of £2.95. The heterosexual family unit did not disintegrate. It gained a little attention on its release. A couple of tabloids tested the waters of public opinion with a sensationalist headline or two featuring Tories encouraging bookshops to boycott the book. MP issues gay book warning. The initial reaction to the book was generally indifferent, leaning towards pleased. The arts section of the Guardian newspaper ran a sweet review. 
It's a loving, down-to-earth portrayal of one kind of family, which manages in an unstrained way to tackle several tricky questions. A few short months later, the same newspaper ran a think piece by Nicholas Tucker entitled Who really cares if Jenny lives with Eric and Martin? Proving that Nicholas Tucker very much cared who Jenny lived with and would much prefer that if Jenny insisted on not living in a heteronormative family unit, she at least kept quiet about it. He politely recommended that children in queer families interpolate themselves into the homosocial worlds of classic literature, like Wind in the Willows, and refrain from demanding overt representation. Gay publications and booksellers across the country and beyond disagreed. As the only English edition, the 3,000 copies of Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin were spread thinly across the UK and North America in radical and feminist bookshops. Update magazine published a review, Our Own Storybook, which glowed with pleasure over the publication of Jenny. How good is it when art keeps pace with social movement? In Washington, D.C., the feminist bookshop Lammas recommended the book's handling of the topic as sensitive and positive. London's Gay Book Club featured Jenny in their spring 1985 book choices. A vital contribution to non-sexist children's literature and an ideal present for any child in your life. A single copy of this well-reviewed picture book was purchased for teacher training by the Inner London Education Authority, where it languished in the reference section. Three years after Jenny was published, it really hit the headlines. It would be easy, considering the crickets that greeted Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin on its initial UK release, to read the catastrophic and homophobic legislation the Conservative Party introduced as an overreaction, or at the very least a misunderstanding. But make no mistake, the backlash against this obscure children's book was calculated and well-funded. Some left-leaning local authorities set up units of gay and lesbian council workers. The largest of these was in Haringey in London. They were set up in the spring of 1986 and started work to support schools to combat homophobia, racism, sexism and ableism. By the summer of that year, a parents' rights group formed to lobby against them. But the Gay and Lesbian Unit founded their Positive Images campaign regardless. The storm had been brewing for a while with the parents' rights groups and tabloids claiming there were compulsory homosexuality lessons in schools. In 1986, somebody finally found that lone copy of Jenny in the reference section of an ILEA teacher resource centre. The vague, scare stories now had a tenuous piece of evidence to connect the school curriculum and gay rights campaigners. Jenny, Eric and Martin were now headline news. Kenneth Baker, Secretary of State for Education, ordered it to be withdrawn and condemned Jenny as homosexual propaganda. Members of the parents' rights groups picketed schools and committed to find and burn any copies in Haringey libraries. Apparently, they did find one, and in what must rank as one of the smallest book burnings in history, they set fire to it on the steps of a civic building. British newspapers, already bloated from hateful reporting on HIV and AIDS in the 1980s, jumped on the story. They reported, incorrectly, that the book was being taught in schools. The Sun ran their infamous headline. Vile book in school! Pupils see pictures of gay lovers! When the Danish version of the book was published, the picture the press used to review the book was the scene where Jenny throws a strop on the way to the laundrette. When the British press circulated pictures from the book, they became hyper-focused on the pictures of Jenny having breakfast in bed with her dads. These pictures show the messy, fleshy reality of daily life in a family. The men are not breakfast cereal advert perfect parents. 
They are not delighted to be woken up. Their sheets are crumpled and they're not dressed yet. But this is a book about how their daughter is the centre of their world, even when they are sleepy and rumpled and not dressed. The press fetishised the blonde girl in the pictures by twisting this image of a family morning into a sinister scene. The gay men's press was a tiny, independent publisher. The Daily Mail and The Sun had readerships of millions. This means that while only a handful of people had read the mundane story of Jenny's weekend, millions had now seen the single photograph of Jenny sitting on the bed with her dads. They had seen the image completely out of context, and underneath screaming headlines suggesting abuse, threat and danger. LGBT campaigns for an equal age of consent in the UK, the age of consent for heterosexual sex was 16 but 21 for homosexual sex, were twisted to suggest a predatory interest in children. In the words of the Daily Telegraph, An official sex industry at work in the classroom, poisoning the minds of our children. By the beginning of 1987, the battle lines were drawn for the upcoming general election, and Haringey was the centre of the storm. On the left, Haringey Black Action rallied thousands to a pro-gay rally called Smash the Backlash. On the right, the Conservative Party harnessed the moral panic for their campaign, a Baptist minister claimed he was on hunger strike to protest the teaching of homosexuality to children, and full-page anti-gay ads were placed in the national papers featuring the parents' rights group. My name is Betty Sheridan. I live in Arangay. I'm married with two children, and I'm scared. If you vote Labour, they'll go on teaching my kids about gays and lesbians instead of giving them proper lessons. Conservative politicians and papers mix sex and sexuality together. They played on the hysteria over the AIDS crisis, somehow combining it with a variety of unrelated topics like local government funding, sex education in schools and a general panic over the vulnerability of the heterosexual family unit. All these concerns and issues were funnelled into and through a children's picture book. Instead of combating the homophobia of the debate, the press coverage forced the Labour opposition onto the defensive, talking about how Jenny was not available to school children rather than why the outrage was illogical in the first place. The Conservative Party and right-wing lobby groups used the welfare of children as an excuse to paint LGBT people as inherently threatening to children. But did they stop to ask children what they thought of Jenny? The magazine Gay East Midlands did in 1983. 11-year-old Oliver wrote a book review of Jenny for the paper and it is both adorable and astute. I think gay people are all right because I live with them and know what they're really like. If more children read books like this, they would understand too and grow up knowing what gay people are really like. Jenny was first dragged up in Parliament in general debates on sex education in schools, despite the fact the book was neither about sex nor taught in schools. What started as a turf war between leftist local authorities and the government on sex education quickly escalated into a campaign to end the promotion of homosexuality by local government. Because, as much as the outrage played off the photographs of Jenny and her pyjama-less dads, those photographs were just an excuse. What the MP Jill Knight and her Conservative colleagues objected to was the core message of Jenny lives with Eric and Martin, that It is never wrong to live with someone that you're fond of. This innocuous message was too much for some. After winning a majority in the 1987 election, the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, made the government's position clear at the Conservative Party conference. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. 
all of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated! Conservative MPs and Lords had been pushing for a clause that outlawed the promotion of homosexuality since 1986, and they seized the chance to push what became known as Section 28 of the Local Government Act through in 1988. In a debate in the House of Lords, Lord Rear spoke about being raised by a lesbian couple and took issue with the description of queer families as a pretended family relationship. He at least sounds like he actually read Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. Apart from being a monumentally boring little book, it is now enjoying considerable and probably undeserved fame. However, it was not produced to promote homosexuality, either intentionally or otherwise, but, I submit, to protect those children who are being brought up by single-sex couples from the intolerance of their schoolfellows. The night that the House of Lords approved the law, lesbian avengers abseiled from the public gallery onto the floor in protest. It also sparked protests across the country, even before it had passed in the House of Commons, with 25,000 people marching against it in Manchester. In May 1988, despite the mass protest and Lord Rear's lukewarm book review, the bill passed into law as Section 28. The night before, lesbian activists stormed the BBC during the six o'clock news. Sue Lawley said, with a mouthful of plums, We have rather been invaded by some people who we hope to be removing very shortly. And this sums up the attitude of the British establishment to protests against Section 28, however logical, desperate or ingenious they were. And the protests were fierce, powerful and creative. There were marches, singles by Boy George and Chumbawamba, concerts by Tom Robinson and public figures like Ian McKellen publicly came out, in every sense, to oppose the act. McKellen produced a gala to support the fight against 28 with a cast list of luminaries. Judy Dench, Imelda Staunton and Gary Oldman. The playwright Alan Bennett also came out and a young Stephen Fry stole the show by comparing the government to pelicans. As far as I'm concerned, they can both stick their bills up their asses. The establishment reaction remained, like Sue Lawley, oppressively polite in the face of protest. There might have been resistance, but they hoped that the invaders would be removed shortly. The invaders would not leave peacefully. New activist organisations were founded, like Stonewall, who would campaign for lesbian, gay and bisexual rights, though it took them 26 more years to campaign for trans rights. Section 28 did not initially result in the prosecution of councils, but it did send a strong message that queer content was not suitable for children and that the lives and families of LGBT citizens were not equal to heterosexual ones. We can't easily quantify the damage that this did. Councils hesitated to fund activities or resources for queer people. Employees like healthcare workers, librarians and teachers were unsure whether they could speak about LGBT issues, other council employees used the act to justify discriminatory actions. The confusion is understandable and possibly intentional. Section 28 of the Local Government Act inserted a new Section 2A that states A local authority shall not A. Intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality. B. Promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Teachers were confused about how the law applied to them, with some avoiding the topic altogether or afraid to support LGBT students. The University of London conducted a survey in 1997 and found that a quarter of teachers thought or were unsure if any discussion of homosexuality was legal. 
They also found evidence of a widespread culture of homophobic bullying, with 82% of schools aware of verbal abuse and over a quarter reporting physical violence. It is, of course, difficult to pinpoint which instances of discrimination were directly caused by Section 28 and which were part of a general culture of already existing moral panic and bigotry. But youth groups and counsellors were defunded, booklets for teenagers dealing with social issues were withdrawn, and arts projects with a connection to LGBT artists were quashed. Edinburgh Council refused an application from the Scottish Homosexual Action Group for a poetry and music festival in 1989. Their fabulous acronym, SHAG, might not have helped, but the point still stands. Section 28 gave tacit licence to existing prejudice in all aspects of life. That same-sex couples were enshrined in law as a pretended family effectively mandated bigotry in custody and housing rights cases. And where did Jenny, Eric and Martin fit into this picture? Despite being effectively withdrawn because of the negative press, they still featured in legal cases. Jenny was cited as a reason why the lesbian and gay Christian movement were an unsafe organisation to grant space to. Our children's picture book was still being used, even in the courts, as a shorthand for deviance, especially by people who had not actually read it. When a writer from the Index on Censorship poured over the Jenny book during a 1988 interview, the people sitting next to them at the cafe demanded to see the infamous book. They flicked right to the Saturday morning scene of the family eating breakfast. And they would not be persuaded, in spite of the evidence in front of their own eyes. The yawns, the trays, the dolls, the lack of any physical contact, that the scene of breakfast in bed was anything but an orgy. They would accept no other term for it. They were in a bizarre state that combined voyeurism and blindness. Because our story focuses on Jenny, we come forward, quite abruptly, by a whole decade, to when Section 28 was repealed, first in Scotland, then in the rest of the UK. This was not because the political triumph of gays is inevitable, or because Scotland is an inherently more progressive place to live in. Quite the opposite. LGBT rights were won in Scotland in the face of opposition and through hard work. In 1999, Scotland devolved from Britain. The country that we live in has been historically slow to grant LGBT rights. We were the last place in Europe to abolish the death penalty for sex between men in 1899, and didn't decriminalise it completely until 1981. The new Scottish Parliament, however, couldn't get rid of Section 28 fast enough, and it was gone within a year. This was accomplished despite a bitter Keep the Claws campaign in Scotland, supported by the right-wing press and engorged by funds from stagecoach billionaire Brian Souter. In 2000, a last-chance prosecution of Glasgow City Council by the Christian Institute was unsuccessful in its bid to cut funding to HIV charities. At the same time, a drive to end Section 28 in England and Wales was led by the newly elected Labour government, but the unelected House of Lords ensured it stayed on the books. Groups who lobbied Parliament in favour of Section 28 were overwhelmingly Christian religious organisations, but there were also a few odd ones, including an animal rescue centre in Uckfield and the National Union of Journalists, though considering the standard of reporting on Section 28, this might not come as a surprise. England and Wales finally caught up in 2003. The spectre of Section 28 may have been vanquished, but its effects did not suddenly disappear in a puff of smoke. The reigniting of the debate gave press attention to homophobic points of view and the culture of government-enforced bigotry had a lasting impact. Research published last year 
revealed that LGBT teachers who worked under Section 28 are less open about their family life than those who started their career after the legislation was removed. Those who supported Section 28 have not been hurt by their 20th century homophobia. On the contrary, a number have been lauded for it. Many of the key players who campaigned for this legislation not only remain obscenely rich, but have been awarded with titles for their contribution to British society. Conservative MP David Cameron, who ruthlessly campaigned for Section 28 and probably had intercourse with a dead pig, was made Prime Minister in 2010 after apologising for the act. Section 28, not the dead pig thing. Brian Souter, who founded the Keep the Clause campaign in Scotland, was knighted in 2011. Jill Knight, friend of Enoch Powell and lifelong champion of Section 28, was made a dame and continued to campaign against gay marriage. She still feels victimised by accusations of homophobia. We've all got friends who are homosexuals. They're often extremely, very, very good at artistic things, very good at things like antiques. Right-wing papers like The Sun and The Daily Mail still mould public discourse. There were no consequences for their misinformation-soaked campaign against Jerry, Eric and Martin. They continue to profit from homophobia and transphobia. The players who instigated Section 28 are not sorry for their actions, and if they occasionally say they are, it is only when a general election is looming. And do the people who supported the release of Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin have any regrets? The original writer is rightly unapologetic, but remains bemused by the reaction to her innocuous picture book. Susanna Boucher remembers a few British journalists calling her for an update on the three models for her book. They hoped to find a tragic tale of gay family life and soon evaporated when she told them that Jenny was fine and that Eric and Martin were happily married and living in Spain. Aubrey Walter from the Gay Men's Press wishes that the book was more explicitly feminist as both the homophobic characters that appear are women but he does not regret the heart of the story. Looking back, he remembers the support their independent press had from the industry and the activists that took on their cause. People could smell burning books. I think more gay people are becoming conscious of what's around them. I don't think the clause has worked. I think there's too much resistance. The legacy of the backlash against Jenny is one of LGBT activism and resistance, but it is also an object lesson for conservative groups wanting to restrict access to inclusive literature for children. The idea that LGBT content is inherently adult has been used against inclusive children's books long after Jenny grew up and no longer lived with Eric and Martin. The tactic has been used for decades, from the outcry over Heather having two mummies in the US in the 1990s, to libraries in Singapore pulping or moving picture books with gay themes to the adult section in 2014. The essence of Section 28 lives on in Russia's vague legislation forbidding the promotion of homosexuality to minors. And Birmingham schools are currently at the centre of a vicious campaign against LGBT-inclusive education. Mirroring the Parents' Rights Group's tactics against Haringey Council, prolonged pickets and parental moral outrage are being wielded as a weapon against any mention of LGBT families within the boundaries of the school. Amidst the panic and misinformation, now is as good a time as any to go back to the author of Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin and her original intention. To give children relevant stories and in a gentle way to help them understand themselves and the society they live in. I believe that a good children's book has a built-in tiny bit of wisdom like the old fairy tales. It is time to keep the tiny bit of wisdom from Jenny, Eric and Martin's story alive.
It is never wrong to live with someone you are fond of. This is not an outdated message, but one children desperately need to hear today. And if there are a few more books today prepared to spread that message, there are still plenty of people determined to keep children from hearing it. Queer Ephemera is written and researched by Kiva McMillan and performed by Jonathan McLean and Rosa McMillan, with sound by Rob McNichol. Visit QueerEphemera.com for transcripts, sources, and show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting our work on Patreon.com forward slash Queer Ephemera and leave us a nice review wherever you can get your podcasts. You know it, sweetheart, because I am gay. Watch it, mister. Oh, will you shut up? Hooray!